Hello, and welcome to Session, a platform where we offer you candid conversations between curious students and seasoned professionals. We're your hosts, two sophomores from the UT McComb School of Business. And whether you're trying to figure out your career pathway, or you just want to broaden your knowledge, you're in the right place. So sit back, relax, and let's start the session. Hey, on today's show, we're joined in conversation by Amanda Hodgson, Senior Manager in Tax at RSM with a focus on M&A. We hope you gain some valuable insight from her background in government, law, and now tax services at a top accounting firm. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for coming on the show today. Um, so can you briefly tell the guest about your early background? And I saw you did a government major at UT. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that? Sure thing. I originally wanted to become a lawyer. Um, I had no interest in government in any sort of business. I never thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer. I never thought I was going to do anything related to math or spreadsheets. Um, so I majored in government when I was at UT, um, went to law school afterwards and ended up really liking tax law while I was there. So I went and got my tax masters. So my LLM in tax law after that, and then started my career in M&A tax consulting after I graduated from my master's program. So let's go back a couple steps. And you said that you always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, what was that like moment of why you wanted to be a lawyer? Like, was this something from like early childhood or was it like some sort of like figure that was motivating you? Um, I think I've just always thought that politics were interesting. And um, I thought that I was actually going to probably end up in government itself hence the government major. Um, But no, I hadn't wanted to be a lawyer since I was a little kid. I just knew that I wanted to be a lawyer when I got to UT, or at least that's what I thought when I got to UT. Um, I'd been in mock trials, so I thought that, you know, we're talking about putting away bad guys or defending bad guys in trial, which turns out even when I got to law school was something that I wasn't even remotely interested in doing. Once you get into the nitty gritty of preparing for a trial, it's not that interesting or glamorous, or considers it to me. Um, and I found myself more drawn to my corporate classes. Um, and so someone said, hey, why don't you take tax law next semester? And I sat in the back, thought I was not going to enjoy the class at all, but I ended up being the person raising my hand every single day and um, actually preparing for class. <laughs> so that's how I kind of pivoted from politics and government uh, to tax law. So you mentioned that you ended up like really enjoying that tax law class. So I guess you understood at that point that you wanted to make the switch from um, like the law world to like more like tax law and accounting. So can you speak a little bit about? Oh, not, yeah, no. And, you know, I don't think that I fully appreciated how many jobs there are in tax law. I thought I was going to go to a law firm, work in their tax law department. I was still kind of focused on trial at that point, but like defend people in um, tax trials or work for the IRS and defend the government in tax trials. Um, I didn't realize that I was going to leave the legal practice or never really enter it. In my case, I I have never practiced law a day in my career. Um, I didn't know I was going to do that until basically I was interviewing for jobs and realized how many other types of jobs there were in the tax field. I noticed that you mentioned working in the IRS. Can you kind of talk about your transition from the IRS to PwC and then eventually to RSM? 
Sure. Yeah. I interned at the IRS when I was in law school still, and I worked in what's called their controversy division. So um, that's controversy is the term you use for tax trials. You don't call it litigation or trials. You call it controversy because it may never go into a courtroom. Um, but I worked for the special trial attorney when I was interning at the IRS. I also argued one case in the small business division um, in front of a tax court judge. Um, and I really loved it. I still thought that that's what I was going to be doing when I went and got my master's. I really thought that I was going to be representing the government or representing people against the government with respect to tax matters. But I had a professor at Emory where I went to law school and he said, I, you're going to be bored out of your mind you are somebody who needs to plan transactions because that's, you're very good at it. You know how to put pieces together. It's basically puzzles and it's proactive, not reactive. When you're in a trial setting, all the facts are what they are. Um, you don't have an opportunity to get a better outcome. Um, you just have to argue why your outcome is the correct way to look at something. And that's when I started really having the wheels turning in my head that I wasn't going to end up working for the government or against the government, that I was really going to end up in more of an advisory role like the one I have now. So to elaborate a little bit on your advisory role, I also noticed that you deal a lot with the mergers, acquisitions, restructuring side. And typically for students like us in business schools around the country, we associate these sorts of roles with like investment banking. So could you elaborate on the tax side that's associated with, you know, these sectors? Sure thing. Yeah. I work with investment bankers a lot. Um, and there are investment banks that employ people like me specifically to help advise, um, companies that are going to market. But my job is either I'm working for the buyer or I'm working for the seller and I have to help identify opportunities. So basically, hey, there are some tax strategies that would work for this business or could work for this business that you're not deploying. And if you did that, here is the potential impact. You'll lower the tax cost that you might be paying on this business on a go forward basis. Or, hey, they have said that they have all of these tax attributes. Maybe they've got net operating losses that they say we can use. Maybe they've got tax credits that they say we can use. Either way, I, my job is to help vet those opportunities and say, it's not what they say it is, or, hey, it's actually kind of better. We don't necessarily need to want to pay them a premium for it, but they're the real deal. They've got tax attributes we can use. That's one side of my job. The other side of my job is identifying tax risks. So if the company hasn't been paying their sales taxes, if they haven't been properly accounting for inventory for tax, they've been doing it right for financial statement purposes, but they haven't been doing it right for tax, I would put a number around that and say, you know, maybe the purchase price needs to be reduced. Maybe we would need to put some money in escrow. Maybe we need to figure out whether there's other things you want to negotiate on because tax is one of many work streams that a buyer or seller might be having to deal with during a transaction process. I'm part of a, a cohort of many advisors that come in on a deal. Investment bankers are the most visible part of mergers and acquisitions, to your point. That's who's going to be in the movies with, you know, Gordon Gecko or something like that. But in reality, a deal might have a hundred different advisors on either or both sides to combine. I had a deal where we had 150 advisors when we were taking a company private from, from the public market because we needed people to look at healthcare regulatory, SEC regulatory, real estate, 
uh, employment law, all of those things get factored into some of the bigger deals. I'm one of many, but I my part is a quantifiable impact to the overall purchase price. And there's a lot of strategy involved in getting to the right answer for tax. Yeah, one general trend I've noticed recently is that investment bankers are sort of like the picture on front of a deal. And then there's so many pieces that are going on in the back. Like I just learned today that tax plays a huge role. There's probably a huge tax team on a deal. I know that there's like some consultants on a deal, some advisory people on a deal. So investment bankers, I guess, run the show, but they can't really do it without you guys. And I wanted to ask more about like tax itself. So obviously tax is a very definitive thing of like, here's a handbook, here's certain rules you have to follow. You have to comply with like government rules and regulations like that versus like consulting. Maybe it's like ideas and creativity that come along. So how does your job like defer day to day in terms of how much you can push the boundaries and how much you can sort of be unique with every deal rather than following a similar structure for each deal. And at certain points, like you're not, you're not really innovating, I guess. That's a great question. And it, it's going to be a little bit dependent on the type of risks that the clients are willing to take. I worked for a client back in my PwC days, back in New York, who would entertain any strategy we could bring forward to them. And so we could spend a lot of time crafting different solutions based on our understanding of their business. Um, that's a longer term restructuring client. We, I always joke that mergers and acquisitions is a little bit misleading from a tax perspective. because so we don't do that many mergers. We mostly do acquisitions, but that client did a lot of mergers, a lot of reorganizations. We sought out all sorts of opportunities. Um, but setting aside those, because they're not exactly unicorns, but they are existent in a certain segment of the market that not every single deal will have. Um, every deal is different, fundamentally. I work more now with founder-led or family-owned businesses, either as they're my client or I'm buying them for one of my clients. Um, and they have a lot of things on their punch list that they want that's not just financial. They want to make sure that management's taken care of, the people that help them build the business to what it is. They want to make sure that they have a seat on the board going forward, even if they don't own any shares any longer. And so we have all these other things that we're trying to address and make sure that we're getting the right outcome holistically. But there's always a tax consequence to conceding on this or enforcing this particular priority. Um, so every deal is different. There is a, to your point, a core set of laws that dictates kind of what the number of options are within each type of, of punch list that somebody might have, but it's the combination of all of those things and making a solution that kind of threads the needle of all the most important priorities for both buyer and seller that makes my job interesting. Okay. I get a better idea. Um, so I want to understand more about like what you do exactly. So I was actually watching the social network last night. And I was thinking of Facebook and I know that Facebook, you know, acquired Instagram back in the day. Like that's a huge acquisition. So like, can we use that as an example and like what side would you be working on in this case and what like certain aspects of the deal are you playing a role in? That's a great question. Um, I might work for buyer or seller. In my previous life, I almost exclusively worked for the buyer and we would not be necessarily the first buyer the way that I work with now. They would have already 
had private equity ownership or maybe another strategic company, maybe another tech company. And so it would be a much bigger seller that kind of knows what they're doing and knows exactly how deals work. And I could be working for them and helping them get ready for sale. Or I could be working for Facebook, now Meta, and having all these request lists, having management calls, trying to understand what have you been doing from a tax perspective? So typically what we ask for is some sort of organizational chart. Tell me what I'm buying. Is it an entity? Is it a division? What type of entity is it? Sometimes it's going to be a C-Corp. Probably Instagram was a C-Corp at that time, meaning that they pay entity-level taxes. And if we buy them, we're going to inherit every tax liability they've ever incurred. If they didn't pay their payroll taxes, if they didn't pay their sales taxes, we're going to have to pay them because legally the future governments, whether that's the French revenue com uh, revenue agency, whether that's the IRS, whether it's Missouri, they could pursue Facebook for anything that Instagram failed to do while Instagram's statute of limitations is open. So we'll ask to see what are we buying because that's going to dictate how much liability we could be bringing on our books. Then we will prepare um, a request list asking to see their tax records in all of the relevant areas and then we'll read them have a call with anyone responsible for their tax matters. When you buy a, a big company from say a strategic like Facebook, they might have a payroll tax specialist, a sales tax specialist, all these people who are separately responsible for all these tax areas with like one tax director sort of overseeing everything. In a smaller company, a, a true startup, you might just have a controller or you might have a CFO who wears all of the hats and has to answer the questions from the auditors and has to answer the questions from the tax people. But typically speaking, you'd have the internal management folks responsible for tax as well as any external advisors that they engage to do tax matters for them. And you ask them a bunch of questions. You say, hey, I noticed that you have no reserve on your net operating losses. Have you penciled out based on your ownership changes, whether those are fully available to us when we buy them from you? Um, or you might say, hey, I, I noticed that you have a sales tax study. Who helped you with that? Are they on the phone? Can they answer a few questions for us about why you've determined that your sales tax, you're not paying sales tax in 50 states? Um, because from what we understand, Instagram is available in all 50 states. So why aren't you paying sales tax in all 50 states? Stuff like that. And so then we compile sort of our follow-up requests, which is a little boring, but then we Speeding along, we're going to prepare a report that says, hey, they weren't paying their sales taxes. Based on the information that they've been able to give us, we estimate that this is a $20 million liability. So you guys got to figure out how you want to negotiate to make yourselves whole in the event that when we announce on the Wall Street Journal next Monday that it, Facebook bought Instagram, that the 50 state revenue agencies are not going to come to Facebook's door and say, where's our $20 million? That's what our job is to prevent is either we're going to prevent them from having the $20 million by helping them implement strategies to get caught up on their sales taxes, or we're going to take $20 million off the purchase price. We're going to put it in an escrow, or we're going to get a special indemnity that says, hey, when the state revenue agencies come knocking Instagram owners, you owe us $20 million when they come and figure it out. When we announce on the Wall Street Journal that we bought you, it's going to attract a lot of attention. We don't want to pay you whatever we're paying you and then have to pay $20 million separately to these state governments. So you're going to make it right for us. And we're going to craft a purchase agreement that will make it right for us. So I guess to sum it all up, it's like 
you go in, the company comes to you and you're like patting them down, like asking them, you know, all your structures that you have, what are your requirements? And then I guess you go back with the team, sort it out, come up with a plan, plan A, B, C probably, because they're probably more than one option, pitch it to them. And they're like, great, let's do this. The deal goes through all that. And in the back end of all of that, you're making sure, you know, whatever your reports you're sending to Wall Street or publicly, it's like adding all up. There's no like backlash in both ends. Um, but any, any other question? Yeah. So I know we've heard a lot about sort of the creativity aspect of tax. And I was just wondering, how do you think tax has evolved in recent years or will continue to evolve? I mean, being in college, I know like AI is a really hot topic right now. Do you see any sort of technologies being used in the tax field? And what should college students like us be cognizant of for a future in tax? That's an interesting question because um, we're answering that ourselves. It's it's still a work in progress. We've heard a, a lot about um, ways that AI can assist us. I think in practice, we have yet to have a meeting of the minds with software engineers about what we do. And the AI is only as good as the coders who understand what we do. You know, when it comes to grammar, there's a lot of online resources about how to structure something. And then there are a lot of blogs about, hey, in this social context, it's better to use this kind of structure when you're writing a message to somebody, you know, saying, hey, can you stop letting your dog use the facilities on my yard. Like there's probably a bunch of stuff on the internet that, that chat GPT can mine to get there. But with our line of work, because every transaction is different because the facts always change and the priorities of the parties, while they might be entities, they're fundamentally human and they fundamentally have human set agendas. The priorities are going to change on every single deal and they're confidential. So we're not going to be publishing the back and forth on a negotiation with respect to tax or with respect to anything, really. So I think that our our practice is not yet fully understood by some of the folks who are developing some of those solutions. But when I think about how does somebody best prepare for having either AI as part of their, their future in tax or just preparing for tax in general. At the end of the day, when you have human processes and human agendas, your goal is to understand that people have different priorities on every single deal and to think critically about why one solution might not work for that party that would have worked on a very similar deal that you did three weeks ago. Um, critical thinking will remain a key component to making our existence worthy in a world of AI. If you're not able to develop critical thinking skills, whether that's on the job or before you get to a job, it's going to be really difficult to justify why we would not hoard all of the resources in more senior positions and have those senior positions enabled with AI. I think that young younger people, students have the opportunity to continue to be relevant so long as critical thinking is one of the soft skills that they develop throughout their educational and professional journey. I wouldn't call myself like the strongest critical thinker when I first got into my career, but I've developed that skill over time because it's been super critical to me doing well. And the sooner you start thinking about being a critical thinker, the, the more agile you'll be to whatever solution exists by the time you graduate. 
One thing that caught my attention is you kind of mentioned how every deal is different. Like, I was sort of wondering, I'm, I'm assuming that RSM works a lot with middle market. And then I'm also assuming that during your time at PwC, you got to work with some larger clients. Could you talk about the contrast in working at a firm like RSM versus PwC? Sure. Um, so middle market's a little bit of a misleading term. I think it's technically 50 million to 500 million in deal value or revenues. I'm not actually sure what the, the metric is. For me, it's been a much wider range. I've worked on projects with RSM that were as small as 15 million and as large as two and a half billion. Um, in the later years at PwC, I didn't work on anything that was smaller than $750 million. And very rarely did I actually ever go under a billion. The difference is usually who's selling. Is the seller the founder of the business or are they related to the founder of the business versus they're the first or second company owner? Maybe it's I'm PepsiCo and I'm buying from another publicly traded company, a, a small business within that publicly traded company. Maybe I'm uh, a private equity fund buying from another private equity fund, or I'm a private equity fund buying from the public markets and the public markets were the third or fourth owner. Um, with that obvious sort of increase in distinction on sellers, you're gonna have potentially an increase in sophistication when it comes to deal matters and when it comes to tax matters. That's not a guarantee. Sometimes we have very sophisticated sellers in the middle market, and sometimes we have very unsophisticated buyers in the upper market. Um, but largely it's gonna be down to sophistication has, a, 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 I would say not a, causation relationship with deal size, but certainly a correlation relationship with deal size. Um, and then just complexity, you know, a business that is worth $2.5 billion probably is in a lot more states. It's probably in a lot more countries. And I might need to be calling, you know, colleagues in Canada and colleagues in uh, Singapore to get a deal done. Um, whereas when I'm in the lower part of the middle market, chances are there are in three states. And if they have sales into Canada, it's like 1% of their overall sales. That does decrease the complexity from a tax law perspective, but the creativity opportunities still exist because they're gonna have very different priorities in selling their business than a public company selling their business to PepsiCo is gonna have. I know you mentioned that you work with some like clients in Canada or perhaps across state lines. And clearly RSM is a global firm. So what are some of the challenges and perhaps even opportunities with having to work across places that may have like differing rules, regulations? You know, uh, there are a lot of countries that follow fundamentally similar international tax rules. We have stuff called like sourcing rules that says this country is entitled to tax it. That country is entitled to tax this. And if they are both trying to tax the same item of income, they'll usually have some sort of foreign tax credit concept. And our job is to sort of make sure that something isn't being taxed twice without sort of any sort of shield. Maybe there is leakage, maybe there isn't. And that's what we call leakage is when we're paying more tax than we should. Um, but that's part of what we are looking at is holistically, are the flows of cash through this business suffering any leakage? And so we have an opportunity to sort of either correct the way the cash flows 
or set up, you know, different entity structure to make sure that the cash is flowing with very minimal friction. Um, but there's also, to your point, completely different laws. I, I've been very fascinated to see some of the differences. We are a substance-driven uh, jurisdiction, meaning if we can paper a transaction ABC way, but the substance of the transaction is DEF, generally speaking, the state and local and federal government are going to look at it as DEF. So as U.S. tax practitioners, we have to think about what is the DEF that's going on here. Um, in other jurisdictions, and I'm taking this from a quote from one of my Canadian colleagues, they're very form driven. If you check the box, if you follow the form to the T, that is going to be the mandated treatment. Um, that's a very different philosophy. And so we might have something that works perfectly from a US perspective, because even if we paper it ABC way, DEF is the correct treatment. And that's the one that the IRS is going to sustain. But my Canadian colleague may come over the top and say, well, I can't, I can't do DEF, I have to do, you know, GHI, and I have to figure out does DEF result from GHI, and making sure that those things are simpatico. If I don't think that through, I put, and my target company has exposure to being subject to tax in Canada, I've given my client a very useless solution because they're potentially opening themselves up to liability in Canada. I think I've learned more about the tax and how deep the tax industry goes more on this call than I have in like info sessions where I ask people like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, we just do tax. We write the tax up. They just make it seem very straightforward and boring sometimes. Um, and I guess I was going to ask you, like, what are some misconceptions about tax? Because obviously you explained it from like front to back. Um, so what are some like common misconceptions that people see in tax? Um, I think the probably the one that I have the hardest time explaining to my clients is revenue is not indicative of obligation. So you can be a pre-revenue company and still have tax obligations, specifically payroll tax obligations. Um, if you have employees, you have a tax obligation. If you have sales, you might have a tax obligation. You can be pre-revenue and still have a cash tax cost. That's the one thing my clients find the hardest to understand. They're like, oh, it's just a little pre-revenue company. How much could it possibly take to look at them? I'm like, oh, guys, usually the smaller they are, the sloppier they are. So honestly, you should be paying me a, a, the premium of making sure they weren't that sloppy. Um, but I mean, broadly as an industry, it is, you know, we, we always say the, tax should, the, the tail shouldn't wag the dog. You shouldn't be doing something purely for the tax benefit but you leave so much potential money on the table if the only time you're thinking about taxes is when you're about to pay them, whether that's on 415, 315 if you're a certain type of company or in anticipation of a transaction. I can work a lot of magic with a little bit of time, but if I have less than a little bit of time, I gotta follow the rules. I don't have a lot of optionality, particularly if you as a buyer or you as a seller has already decided on all of your priorities before you thought about tax. If you're not gonna budge from that priority list, then you're boxing me in as a, as a professional and I will do everything I can within the brief that you've given me, but I can't work any magic if you're gonna be inflexible about stuff. So think about tax at flexion points other than when you're paying them, um, because you might have opportunities that exist there that are, you know, they always say tax planning is totally legal. Uh, you, you, there's a very famous 
judge, the learned hand that has this quote about tax planning is totally legal. But I, if you're not giving me the opportunity to plan, there's not a lot of legal avenues I have to reducing your taxes or optimizing your taxes because that's not always about reducing. I think that's probably the, the, the biggest misconception is that we sit there and we wait for the phone to ring. We have a lot of opportunities to be of meaningful assistance if you're talking to us more often than when you've got an LOI or a letter of intent in hand. But that's my perspective as a transaction tax person. Broadly, tax has a lot of creativity involved in the job. I mean, we've used that word a lot today. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities to be on big clients, big deals, working in, in international avenues that come purely from doing algebra for a living, because that's what I do. I read a, a legal document, I turn it into formulas, and I draw a couple of boxes and a couple of triangles and find some solutions. It's something that's accessible to anybody that is a critical thinker, um, and it can open up some really interesting avenues for you career-wise that's not simply filling out a tax form every spring. That's great insight, Amanda. And I think just keeping our whole conversation in mind and then your recent point about you know, someone interested in a career in tax, could you give students like us two or three pieces of actionable advice if we're interested in the industry? Sure thing. Um, the, the more that you work on basic accounting, the I think you can take basic accounting to literally any financial career, whether that's being an investment bank, whether that's working in tax. I am not the strongest accountant in our group by a long shot, but basic accounting and understanding debits, credits, and then income. When do you have income? When does gap save income? When does tax save income? Those things I think are totally knowable, but not fully knowable, but totally understandable by the time you graduate from an undergraduate program. Um, but I think critical thinking, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and learning how to write um, and write in, in tax language or business language Either way, learning how to make your point clearly and succinctly, those are things that are going to be invaluable to any financial career. There's a lot more writing involved than you think. You talk to people a lot more than you think. Um, and then I guess the last point is that we know that these careers are challenging. Um, I would say that I probably got good at my job four and a half years into my career, maybe a little bit earlier. But something I've been seeing a lot lately is that we've got these high performers who want to be perfect on day one. And I don't want to be the kind of person who was born to do this job. I like that person to me sounds like a very uninteresting person. Uh, be, be prepared to learn how to take a win that isn't actually success. Like success and wins are very different. Um, wins are, I learned how to do something better today than I knew how to do yesterday. Um, success is I turned in a perfect draft the first time I ever wrote a draft of a report ever to my, my manager, my senior manager. Um, if you can learn to take things as wins before you've achieved any success, chances are you're going to do pretty well in a financial career because it's all about having a, a daily win um, as opposed to a daily success. Definitely like great motivation. And I, I guess one thought just kept lingering on my mind is circling back is how did your Juris Doctor 
play a role into all this. And even today, like when you're working at RSM constantly on new deals, how does that play a role? Like, does it even play a role at all? Or I mean, I'm pretty sure it had some value, but. Yeah, you know, uh, I loved going to law school. I have a lot of really great memories and friends, but I could have gotten this job by going to the five-year Master of Accountancy program at UT. Um, and based on how long it's been taking me to pay off my student loans, I probably would have been better off going down that path. But um, though probably the biggest takeaway from law school is how to write. Um, you have briefs, you're supposed to brief cases to prepare for class. And it's you're gonna be doing that in any field, whether that's finance or marketing or whatever, you're gonna to have to have, here's my conclusion, here are the facts, here are the rules that are in play, here's my analysis and restating my conclusion for you. That's the structure of any legal brief that you write just summarizing a case. And that's effectively what I do every day for work, whether that's an email or an actual deliverable. I am saying, here's my recommendation. Here are the rules that apply. Here are the facts that we have. Here's the analysis that might give you a different result than you were expecting. In summation, this is my conclusion. Would love to talk to you about it. That's what I do every day. And sometimes that is a two sentence email and sometimes it is a four paragraph email and sometimes it's a 20 page report. But that's, <laughs> and that's, that's the biggest takeaway that I had from my Juris Doctor is how to write. I think that's a pretty invaluable asset, uh, being able to write really well. Everyone can read and write, but just excelling to a different point where you could put everything on papers, a different skill set. Uh, but before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you our signature question. It's really random, but let's say you wake up tomorrow morning and you see a million dollars in the bank. And that's one million with the M. Uh, and that's a shit ton of money. So what would you do? What would you do with that money? I ask this question all the time. Um, I actually play a game where I say, what would be the one behavior that all of your friends and family would know that you would come into money recently if you did nothing differently? Uh, at least like you didn't quit your job, you didn't buy a new house. What would be like the one thing that your friends and family would figure out that you'd come into money? Uh, this is gonna sound really boring, but I'd pay off all of my loans. I'd pay off my house, I'd pay off my car, I'd pay off my student loans. and. I maybe I'd still have some money left after that, but um, I love to travel. I, I think I'd probably I, I right now I'm going down a rabbit hole on these luxury train cars, which is unfortunately shown my age. Uh, I would go on one of those like trips like from Paris to Istanbul on a luxury train or something because I would never spend that kind of money to be trapped on a train. But if I had that kind of money, sure, yeah, I could do that. Um, so yeah, that's probably what I would do. I would do something cool travel-wise that I would otherwise maybe not allow myself to spend that money on. And that's a wrap on today's episode with Amanda Hodson, tax professional, law graduate, and an avid traveler.